Open up, my friends, to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to read some of chapter 34 as an introduction, and then we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 4, because, helpful for me today, the Apostle Paul has already preached a sermon on the text that we're about to read. He's already written almost a whole chapter on, this, uh, on these, uh, this short section at the end of chapter 34, which we can just go and absolutely cheat. I will not be uh, 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 charged with plagiarism. There's my reference. I'm just stealing Paul's sermon outline and applying it to us today. But, but this is very true. God's salvation towards sinful man is glorious. Amen? And it, it had... A glory in the Old Covenant dispensation or age or administration, whatever words we might use. Amen? It it was amazing. But the New Covenant of Jesus Christ instituted through his blood in the gospel is infinitely more glorious. Amen, somebody? The picture that we get here today is that even in the Old Covenant, under the, 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 the administration of law, where, where most of the people under it were condemned, even as we go back into this age and look at the scene of Moses, even then, a much less glorious covenant, even that covenant, you could walk away from its glory like Moses does. Even after God, like we looked at this last week, God, God displays his glorious goodness to Moses by telling him his attributes, covering him with his hand and hiding in a rock. The, the, the back part of God has just gone past. Moses catches a glimpse. It's, it's just the afterglow of God's glory. And then Moses comes down the hill and his face is still illuminescent. It is still radiant. It is still, I don't know whether he had a torch, but his face is radiant. It's giving off light. And all he got was the afterglow of the back part of God's glory in the Old Covenant. Let's read Exodus chapter 34, and it tells us a bit of this, the actual uh, accounts of, of that day. We have skipped a section of 34. We'll come back to that in the following sermon. Verse 29 of Exodus chapter 34. When Moses came down from the mountain of Sinai with the two tablets, the testimony, in his hand as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. So it's as if they'd actually run off. They came back to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near And he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We will start out in verse 9. And here Paul, which we will be doing, just makes a list of comparisons and contrasts between the greatness and glory of the Old Covenant with the much greater glory of the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. 4. If there was glory in the ministry um, of condemnation, 
the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. But to this day, Paul says, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by our open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God bless this word about his glorious son in our midst this morning. Paul's argument, we're not really going to be going back to Exodus now, we'll be camping out in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Paul's argument is to make contrasts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in the New Testament, sometimes the matter of doing that is this. They say, look at how good the Old Covenant was. Wasn't it unique? Wasn't it peculiar? Wasn't it miraculous? Well, the gospel's so much better. Sometimes the way that the, Bible, the New Testament contrasts is to say, do you see what the Old, Com the old Covenant accomplished in this way, but it fell short? Well, Jesus accomplishes it so much further and does not fall short. Well, sometimes the contrast is more negative, saying, don't you see the terror of living under the old covenant system? Well, the new covenant system has much more glory, freedom, grace, and mercy in Jesus Christ. So there's all sorts of ways that the New Testament compares and contrasts the Old Covenant to the New. But today, we'll be following Paul's own logic. I actually want you to look at verse 7 for a little bit more context. Chapter 3, verse 7 in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, in his first comparison, that the Old Covenant is shadow, the New Covenant is substance, because the Old Covenant was dead, and the New Covenant is alive. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved into letters of stone, came with such glory, 
that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Back in verse 3, he has already said that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Sorry, that's verse 6. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. What is in comparison here in the mind of Paul is he, he is, he is, he, no, no one loves the Bible more than Paul, okay? No one honors the old covenant purposes, the Messiah it brought forth, and all of the messages we might apply out of it more than Paul. But he still has the audacity to stand on the brink of history with Jesus and his cross and the New Testament and the New Covenant and the kingdom of God unleashing onto the globe. And he looks back through the corridors of time. Says everything from Abraham to Jesus was a ministry of death. It was good, authoritative, powerful, amazing, true laws written on dead stone that dead sinners couldn't obey, so died for their unbelief. So we look back and we say, is Paul saying that the old covenant was warped? That it had error? That it, that it, was, that it was incorrect? We say, absolutely not. That's just the problem. It's truth written on unbending stone. And to live under the old covenant system was to see a good standard, hear the right commandments, and simply conclude, but I can't. I can't do that. Not because the commandment is Wrong, but because it's too good, it's too high, and, and what it commands me. For example, circumcise your heart and be born again, they were told in the Old Covenant. How? How can I do that? I cannot do that to myself. I cannot rise myself to new life. I cannot be rid of the flesh of my soul. I cannot cleanse myself from sin and become holy as God is holy. How do I do these things? So, so the Old Covenant was good, true, accurate, inerrant, but for all of its knowledge, for all of the law, for all of the prophets preaching, for all of the people's reading, it wrought no spiritual life. Now, another clarifying question we might have is, are you saying no one in the old covenant ever received a new heart, ever received the spirit and never got saved? Absolutely not. Of course there was grace dispensed. And life administered through the Spirit in the Old Covenant history. But it was not on the merit or the promises of the Old Covenant law. You don't read what is handed down at Sinai and say, Oh, God's going to give us a new heart. And by faith alone, we're justified, adopted, and have a full inheritance. You don't read that in its clarity according to the Old Covenant law. You have it prophesied and promised that one day this is what God will do through a promised one. And, and if you believe those promises, you will receive life. But the law itself, as an institution, as a, a, a rule of life over their nation, it did not give life. It only demanded life, which they could not provide. And so in this sense, with all of the clarifications we might need to make, in this sense, Paul says the old covenant was God administering a dead letter to the Israelites. That's not dividing New Testament. To, that's no This is apostolic language. The Old Covenant was largely an administration of death to mankind. But the New Covenant, he says, with much more glory, is that of spirit. That is why 
Theologians look at the New Covenant, look at the Old Covenant, the New Testament and Old Testament, and we go, you know what we don't have in the New Testament? A, the, a Pentateuch. We don't have five books, or, or at least three and a half books, of nothing but intricate law commanding your life. This is what Paul says in Galatians, that there has been such a change with Old Covenant to New Covenant, that there is so much more freedom for the Christian. You're a Chinese Christian, you'll eat stuff the Jews wouldn't have, and eat stuff that I won't. You're an Eskimo Christian, you will wear things that the Jews were not ceremonially allowed to touch, the skin of certain animals. But that is fine. As Christians over history and in different nations, in the New Covenant, there's so much freedom because the substance of our relationship with God and life is not a intricate line-by-line law commanding every action in life, but the Spirit who guides us into righteousness. Therefore, Paul says, if one, one covenant was a dead outward formality, unable to give life, and the other covenant is life-giving in its very nature and substance, then it is far more glorious than the other. And here's his logic. And if the old dead one made a guy's face shine so brightly that people got afraid because he got caught the back glimpse of God's glory, how much more glorious and radiant must it be to behold with unveiled faces the new covenant glory in Jesus? So our new covenant is better because instead of just dead letters on law, it is spirit-wrought life. What the old was pointing to was demanding in shadow the new actually provides spirit-given life. The second contrast that he makes, and this we're going to see in verse 9. Again, the same logic. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So, so, so now he's even calling the old covenant the administration of condemnation. Because... What it could do was publish law. Now, this again does not mean that there's no Jews in the Old Covenant who were declared righteous by faith in the Messiah to come. Absolutely. That's Paul's argument in places like Romans and Galatians. But here, he's talking as of it as a historical lump and its main essence and themes. And he says, we can conclude of the Old Covenant that it was an administration of condemnation. In its very essence, every person, in fact, we could say this, as long as you were a member of the Old Covenant, you were condemned. Not condemned for being a member of the Old Covenant, but condemned because there's no such thing as a human being who can enter into covenant with God according to the Old Testament and be found righteous in and of their own standing. The laws condemn you. Its commandments are far too difficult. In fact, not only the intricate outward laws, but then even God said, love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we go, that's impossible. He says, yes, but it's what the law requires. So where are you? Are you justified or are you condemned by the old covenant? Every person under the old covenant, even Moses, even Abraham, were condemned by its commandments. In other words, Paul is saying this, Bound up with the Israelite system was a continual reminder of sin which demanded a savior. In the gospel, there is the continual reminder of the savior for our sin. In the old covenant, 
It felt, uh, you could fall short, not that you could, everybody did fall short, because in the old covenant was held up a standard. This is, this is paradigm shifting if you understand this. The old covenant revealed a wonderful, inspired, but deadly standard. Therefore, everybody who related to God through that old covenant fell short of a standard. However, in the gospel, there is no such standard. There is provision of promise. Therefore, it is literally impossible to come to the gospel and fall too far short. You cannot fall short of the gospel. The gospel is impossible to be too bad for. The old covenant cut people off who were under it because they couldn't do good enough. The gospel literally has no capability to condemn people who are coming to God through it because it's not a standard. It's a, it's a life raft. It's not a list of things that must be done and hopefully God's merciful through the sacrifices. It is the promise in Jesus' own blood that if you have faith in it, no matter how deep your sin goes, they will be forgiven, you will be cleansed, your soul will be justified. It's literally impossible to fall short of the gospel unless you don't believe it. But in the old covenant, you could believe, you could belong, you could try, you could attempt, you could be genuine and fall far short. Even David, the people who were saved in the altar, they believed in the Messiah to come, they were justified, they would go to heaven, they still fell continually short. And so Paul summarizes and says, that old covenant can be thought of as a condemnation dispenser. Continual reminder of guilt. The new covenant can be thought of as a justification dispenser. A continual publishing of righteousness given through Jesus for needy sinners who are in debt to God. Therefore, he says in verse 10, indeed, in, the case, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory of all, of, at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Everybody loves a sunrise. It is surpassed, maybe not in beauty, but at least in radiance by the midday sun. If you are in darkness, you may think, this is the brightest thing I've ever seen, a sunrise. Well, you just wait till midday. This is, um, I'm glad that bloodletting, the practice of screwing people's skulls to relieve he headaches and hemorrhages, I'm glad that that saved people in the 16 through 1700s. Some saved life is good. The invention of Panadol and blood thinners has anybody ever gone to the doctor and had a bloodlet? No, no. Because, great, saved some people. It is surpassed in history and thankfully relegated to the, to the, to the books and not the practices because something far greater has come. So, so, yes, the glory, he's saying, the glory of the old covenant was the greatest glory, the most peculiar glory, the most wonderful thing humankind had ever seen since it, since it lost the glimpse of God by the curse out of Eden. The most glorious thing ever. And it is a flickering candle compared to the blazing midday sun of Jesus' revelation of God's glory in the gospel. Never. I say this continually as we study the Old Testament, but I need to. Never be one of those Christians that goes, church is cool, but I just wished I lived in the Old Testament times when God did amazing things. Don't ever blaspheme God that way. Peter literally says, they wished, the prophets wished, they lived in our day. Because every average Christian 
knows more than the most knowledgeable Old Testament prophet because you know Jesus. We have a ministry of righteousness and therefore much greater glory. Whatever glory we can conclude Mount Sinai had, Mount Calvary has infinitely more. Then he makes a third uh, uh, comparison. Look at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is hinted at also up in verse 7 when it says, The Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. In verse 12 he says, We're very bold, not like Moses, verse 13, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We don't hear this in Exodus, but Paul gives us the divine explanation that when Moses came down from the mountain, it was blazing and radiant, and it was impressive and even scary. And he put a veil and, and, and he spoke to them. He called them, no, come near and, and speak. Then what he realized and the others realized is that it began to fade. Paul tells us the intention of Moses was not actually to shield the people from the glory. It was to hide the fact that it was fading. Right? If you've just had to butcher a bunch of them because they worshipped another god, because they lost faith in you as their leader, and then you come back from another 40 days away and they say, God really is with you. Look at your face shining. And the next day you start to realize the darkness is coming back. You think... I can't let them see this. And so he would leave the veil on until he went to God again, and then he would come down, speak to them while it was bright, and put the veil back on. He was afraid to show them that it was fading. And Paul says, that's an imagery, that's an analogy of the glory of the old covenant itself. Because historically now, it was, it was the womb, and the new covenant is the child born in life. The, the, the old covenant was the scaffolding that went up so that it could build the, the building amidst it. And then what happens when the building is finished? The scaffolding is removed. The, 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 when, when, when maybe you've seen this, when the real estate agent sets up a little demountable office on a large plane of, of vacant lots... And you can go there, drive up this empty neighborhood with no houses. You can go into the real estate's office and ask which lot and how much are they going for and when's the auction and how can we build and when's the next month that it's available. Then you go. Now, when each of those lots have been purchased and people fill them and have built their own houses, that real estate office goes away because you don't need to be told where the houses are that are already there, right? And there's nothing to buy. There's no more to offer. If the, if the office stayed there, people would continually come in and go, so what's available? They said, nothing. Nothing. You either, nothing. I have nothing to offer. So it is with the old covenant system. It was good. It was God inspired. It was for a purpose. But its purpose was the new covenant. So once the new covenant arrives, it can be done away with. Glorious until the greater glory is broken through. Useful until the new covenant house is established in Jesus. So Paul is saying, just as Moses' glory was amazing, but fading, so the old covenant was amazing, but fading, because it had an inbuilt 
uh, 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 end. It had an inbuilt uh, 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 irrelevance that in, that in the sense that it would come to a time by God's plan that was no longer needed. That's not a fail of the system. That's a success of the old covenant. It brought forth the Messiah. So Paul is, uh, Paul is saying, unlike Moses, who represented a covenant that would pass away eventually, the gospel knows no such thing as awaiting something greater. The law as a system passed away. The gospel remains forever and will never evolve. In the new covenant, we never await the next better covenant. In fact, heaven and glory forevermore is not the next thing God does. It's not an improvement on the gospel. It's not a replacement of the new covenant. It's just a consummation of the new covenant. It's just giving us everything the gospel did in fact promise that we've not yet fully received. But it's not a new thing. The gospel doesn't pass away. We will forever have a mediator in flesh, in heaven, before God, representing the cleansing of sin, a perfect righteousness, and leading us into a more and more glorifying kingdom into eternity. The gospel never ends. Hence, it has a glory infinitely better than the glory of that which passed away. Paul, therefore, is saying, we have a covenant which gives spiritual life. We have a covenant that declares sinners righteous. We have a covenant that only gets more and more glorious. Therefore, look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That's what he's saying. Of course we preach this. Of course we come to church and sing this and share this and do not hide this under a rock and do not put this light under a lamp, uh, under a, a bushel. And we do not keep this hidden away, but we proclaim it and preach it and extol it and call sinners towards it. We are not ashamed of this. We are very, very bold because how could you be anything but? He says, though, in verse... 15 of chapter 3, he says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's saying, as it was with Moses by analogy, so it was in Paul's day. He says, for, for 1,500 years, Moses, the Old Testament is read in synagogue, and the Jews listen, but they try to understand it without the key of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And even now that he's come and they killed him and he's alive again and the churches are being planted and the gospel preached, they still go to synagogue and try and, try and not listen and not, not picture, not imagine and completely discredit any involvement of Jesus as the Messiah. And he says as long as they do that, they have a veil over their hearts, they can't understand Moses because Moses pointed to Jesus. Isn't that, hasn't that been true over our, our walk through Exodus that on every page we've seen a clear silhouette of Jesus? Can you imagine trying to read the book of Exodus or me preaching to you the book of Exodus and having nothing to say about Jesus? How confusing, how confounding, and how condemning to you and I. He says they've got a veil over their heart because they don't see Jesus. And here's this play on words. He says, when did Moses take the veil off? When he turns to the Lord again. He says, spiritually, when can a Jew remove the veil of ignorance and blindness? when they turn to Jesus Christ, the glory of God. So that's the only way the old covenant 
clicks into giving you salvation is when you realize it pointed to Jesus and only in Jesus is there salvation. And then he compares it to us in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See what he says? Not just one of us. Moses was literally one in a million who got to see the glory of God. Who does he say sees the glory of God now? We all. Every one of us have the privilege of Moses. But in fact, it's better. Because we're not like the Israelites beholding with veiled face. We are completely unveiled like Moses, all of us. And we are beholding the glory of Jesus in such a way that it gets more and more radiant in us rather than fading away. The glory of God through Jesus, when it's imparted to your heart by faith, when you've been born again and you've grasped the gospel and you believe in Christ, you are unified to him spiritually so that the life source is now imparted to you. A a river of living water, Jesus says. A a bubbling up brook of of living water, eternal life water. Uh, You become the light of the world because in you is Jesus living the hope of glory, we're told. He's in you. You're seeing him. You are, you are basking in his glory and shining it to others. And that does not fade. It gets more and more glorious because of the work of the Spirit. And so now Paul says in chapter 4, here's sort of his, his, uh, his, his applications for ministry. He says, so of course, verse 1 to 2, of course we don't try and twist people's arms offer them money and hide what we really mean through cunning and tampering and offering people money from God. We're not idiots. We're not fools. We're not sent from the demons and the devils. We have the glory of God, so we just say it. Why do we preach line by line by line by line by line by line by line here and when you go to Bible studies in the middle of the week? Why don't we have party groups? Because there's nothing you would ever want to do than just understand what the Word says and have it blow your soul apart. That's why. Why would we hide this? Why would we tamper this? Why would I have a unicycler and a great smoke show and a great uh, uh, entertainment system during church when we can just read the Bible and behold God's glory? What what do you think this ministry is, Paul's saying? Because there were men doing just that. And and then here's sort of the question in verse 3. Moses, uh, sorry, Paul, hey Paul, your gospel's so glorious. Your gospel's so so powerful and so life-giving. What's with all the unbelievers, Paul? What's with all the scars on your back that they whip you and beat you when you tell them and kick you out? If this is all the glory of God, why do your own people reject you and the Gentiles imprison you and mock you? Huh? Where's all this life and glory? (coughs) Why is there such failure and tragedy and judgment? Why are people picking up on this? Paul, many are rejecting it. So much for a greater glory. So much for this glory in a crucified Messiah. Obviously, people aren't rejecting it. Here's Paul's response in verse 3. Of course they're not rejecting it. They're dead and they're blind. They won't see the life and they won't see the light. Calvin says it this way. The sum is this, that the blindness of unbelievers detracts nothing from the clearness of his gospel. For the sun is not less resplendent because the blind do not perceive its light. Right? Somebody says to you, I don't know, Grand Canyon's pretty lame in my opinion. You ever been there? No, 
that I never have, then your opinion doesn't matter. This is, this is a great apologetical argument. You don't think Jesus is true, real, life-giving, amazing, glorious? Right? Have you ever received him as Savior and Lord of your life and God? No? Then unbelievers, you just have no grounds to judge the, the glory of Jesus. You haven't seen him. That's Paul's argument. Uh, he doesn't sort of come back to neutrality and go, yeah, I, they have a point. No, this is the case. You're either alive or dead. And that is told by whether or not you receive the glory of Jesus or you reject the glory of Jesus. That's the only eye test we need in spirituality. Is the cross of Jesus the most glorious thing ever seen on this earth? Or is it foolishness? Is it irrelevant? Is it a distraction? Is it not your best life now? Is it not a fulfillment of your felt needs? Is it any of those other things? So, so Paul simply says, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so they can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You might think, no, I was abused as a child and this doesn't, I, I reject this. No, too much suffering has befallen me. I, I, I reject God. No, I think it's rather philosophically untenable, this whole gospel nonsense. Oh, it's so antiquated and we've evolved from this. You may think you have reasons, logic, feelings, science, be on your side to reject this. And God is saying, those are all just intricately woven blindfolds that the devil has put on your eyes so that he can take you to hell. If in the gospel, the glory of God, you do not see a resplendent, shining, radiant, beautiful Jesus as Savior. That says more about you than it says anything about the gospel. You are blind and you are perishing, Paul says. So we preach Jesus. And then the question becomes, hang on, hang on. we're perishing, we can't see it. We're blind, we can't behold it. How is there such a thing as this? How is there such a thing as the church and multiple churches and growing churches and thousands upon thousands pressing into the churches all over the Roman Empire, Paul? Hey, now we're confused on the other side. If we're all perishing and blind and dead, how can we see? And that he answers in verse 4 and following. Uh, for, sorry, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness in Genesis 1, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At some point in your life, though you are deserving of death, though you are dead in yourself and unable to arrive or erupt or evolve towards this, if you are a Christian now, that tells me, whether you can put a date to it or not, that at some point in your life you were reading a tract, listening to a friend, watching a YouTube sermon, sitting in one of these pews or a pew of another church, at home reading a Bible, listening to a grandmother tell you her beliefs. At some point, the gospel being put out to you in words was taken by the Holy Spirit. He punched a hole in the dead brick wall of your heart and the blazing sun of the universe filled your soul and gave you a comprehension, a love, a beholding, an understanding of the gospel of Jesus, that I am a sinner and he is everything I need. He's not some ridiculous, antiquated religious leader. He is my savior. He is my God and he will be my king. The spirit, therefore, it is the spirit's job, here as we end out with three applications. The spirit enlightens our eyes to see Jesus in his gospel as the full manifestation of the glory of God. 
The only reason a dead sinner comes to see the glory of Jesus is because the Spirit does his job, which is to find all of the lost sheep of God, all of the chosen but still unsaved, and at the preaching of the gospel, he, he unleashes the, 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 the blindness. He, he, he opens the curtains and brings the revelation of the glory of God into the heart to be believed and understood and cherished. Verse 18 of chapter 3 also tells us that as we behold Jesus, so the Spirit progressively transforms us into Christ-likeness one degree at a time. In other words, you will become what you behold. If your soul, John Piper says it this way, your soul shrink wraps the object of its greatest affections. You love above all else pornography, money, Your soul will shrink wrap that and shrivel as it does so. As your greatest affection, you behold and see Jesus Christ in all of his resplendent, crucified, risen glory. Your soul will do nothing but continue to expand as it fails to get its fingers around Jesus Christ. This means in really basic terminology, the way you grow as a Christian is not by going out and buying a five steps to a holier you. It's not by a list of 20 great and perfect resolutions for 2024 to become the Christian you always wished you could be. In basic terminology, it's this. Look at Jesus more clearly. Read the Bible more to see Jesus. Sit under preaching more often that points you to Jesus. Gather your family more often to talk and discuss Jesus. Focus, behold, and look to the salvation of Jesus and your soul will enlarge, and you will become more Christ-like. Secondly, preach Jesus and pray for the Spirit's work. What Paul told us of the Old Covenant is partially true of the New Covenant. That if the gospel is preached, and the law is known, and the church does its ordinances, and we talk about the Bible, that still remains only the letter that kills if the Spirit does not come and apply it to people's heart in faith. This is why you can have accurate, theologically astute, correct, reformed churches shrink, die, see nobody saved, and then be wiped out and bought by some gay club in the city. This is why churches can be correct in everything and die and administer death. Because what is also needed is the humility that prays to the Spirit to come and do what only the Spirit can do. Word and Spirit. Gospel of Jesus, empowered, proclaimed by, and prayed for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So, preach the gospel to your friends, to your family, through tracts, through conversation, through online sharing. Here at church, that is what we will do always and ever. Paul's conclusion was not, people don't seem to like the gospel much, better figure figure out something else to say. He says, we're going to turn it up hotter, brighter, more loud, because eventually the Spirit will start breaking down like a wrecking ball, the, the, the bricks that, that stand before people's hearts. So preach the gospel in all that we do as a church, and pray that the Spirit empowers it to bring life, which only he can do. And thirdly, do you see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Personally. In your heart of hearts, what's the most glorious, awesome thing in the universe to you? And when you look at the gospel and hear the gospel preached and hear it explained and study it, whatever, because you're in a Bible study that your parents dragged you to, what happens to your soul? 
Are you beholding something magnificent beyond words and beyond comprehension? We're all the, 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 the oceans of the world, ink, and every tree on earth a quill. And we're all of the sky of parchment made. Still there could be not enough time or resources to write out the glories of the love of God in Jesus. I'm paraphrasing an old Christian poem. There's no such thing as comprehending this to its final degree. Do you feel that at all? Or do you see in the gospel another recitation of religion more boring dogma, irrelevance. You, you want to know how to, how to grow and, and meet your, 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 your goals. The gospel just doesn't do it for you. And friends, you need nothing else than God by his sovereign, infinite power to speak to your heart, call it to life, and allow the light of the gospel to shine in. Nothing else can do it. You need to be, in biblical words, converted, born again. So let's pray for that to happen right now. Let's bow our heads. And as you do so, if you know yourself outside of Jesus and, and you know that in your heart is not the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then you ask him. You amen as I pray in, in your own heart and you ask him, please God, give me such a sight of Jesus. Father God, we thank you for the glory of the word of God and that it shows to us even therein spectrums of glory, degrees of glory. And Exodus holds holds out to us an amazing glory. But Lord God, we see in Jesus an infinitely greater glory than any that had been bestowed before. We thank you, Lord God, for this comparison in Scripture. We thank you for the progression of salvation through history. But now, in substance, we ask for these things, Lord God, that the Spirit would work this truth into our hearts and lives, that you would give life instead of death, that you would give righteousness instead of condemnation, and that you would give an abiding and increasing glory rather than a fading religious experience. We pray, Lord God, that those who do not see glory in the cross of Jesus would be converted here in this moment or as they cry to you on their bed tonight, that you would give them the thing that they need the most which is a vision of Jesus in their soul, a, a comprehension and an understanding that in Jesus that is, there is glory and there is salvation. And we ask, Lord God, that we as a church would share, would speak, would preach this gospel so that many are saved to the glory of God. And may you make us like him more and more, week by week and day by day. We pray these things in the glorious name of Jesus. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.